Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Welcome to the latest episode of Inside the IC. My guest today is Jim Richberg, the Field Chief Information Security Officer for Fortinet Public Sector. Jim is a former intelligence official whose lengthy career in the IC included a stint as the National Intelligence Manager for Cyber. Jim, thanks so much for being on the program today. It's great to be with you, Justin. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too, me too. And uh, Jim, before we get into kind of the, uh, the current issues, I would love if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your experience, and how you've you know really been I- involved in this cyber issue for really as long as it's been around. Well, well, thanks, Justin. And, uh, you know, I had 34 years in the intelligence community, 20 years at CIA. And then, of course, after 9-11, they created this office of the director of national intelligence. And I became a plank owner uh, in, in that. And now I've got nearly four years working on the public sector for a leading cybersecurity company. Now, I got started doing cyber in the intelligence community. You know, before we called it cyber, we called it information operations. Well, Relatively few people remember that before we called it information operations, we called it computer operations, that we had this iconoclastic thought in the human intelligence business that computers are going to be the equivalent of safes for the 21st century, which now we look at it and go, that's so passe. But I I got started back when we were looking at that as the replacement for the paper repositories of things. And then fast forward after 9-11, I ended up running the National Counterintelligence Program. And even then, insider threats were starting to use cyber tools. We certainly saw nation state activity do that. I became one of the architects of the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative, the whole of nation but largely whole of government activity that brought a lot of investment into the intelligence community. And then, as you said, I became the national intelligence manager. So creating a unifying strategy for the IC on cyber, setting collection and analytic priorities, framing the functions of a new center to integrate what we knew about threat information. So I've seen the arc of this go from something very much a a niche boutique topic to something where everybody says cyber touches everything. And frankly, for a number of years, it was for the annual threat assessment testimony that the Director of National Intelligence and other agency heads did for about a half a dozen of those years, the number one topic they would go through was cyber because it seemed that cyber was a part of every threat. Yeah, indeed. And it certainly is still trending in that direction today. I'd love uh, to know, you know, how have you seen cyber threat intelligence and analytics and what the intelligence community does in this space evolve, um, especially in recent years, now that you've got this perspective from from the outside, too? So, Justin, I think I'd really start by saying, what are the similarities and the differences in cyber threat intelligence as it's practiced in government and in the private sector. And I think I actually would start by saying, what is the 2019 national intelligence strategy direct the intelligence community to do on cyber threat? And it says the IC should detect and understand cyber threats and threat actors to do three things. To inform and enable decision-making, well, that's a classic IC role, to enable cybersecurity, and to enable the full range of response options. Because remember, we have instruments of national power that we can use. How does that differ from what the private sector does? The private sector focuses on number two on that list, cybersecurity. 
the private sector on threat intelligence is about collecting information to enable better cybersecurity for its customers, full stop. And to, to make sense of that from another perspective, think about intelligence as existing at three levels. There's tactical intelligence, there's operational intelligence, and there's strategic. And in cyber context, the tactical or technical stuff is the indicators of compromise, is the forensic stuff. It's the things that machines generate, uh, digital hashes, and machines consume. Uh, we're 15 years past the days when humans did all the malware analysis and said, Eureka, here's the key to this one and do something about it. 99.99, however many trailing nines you want of that is now done on an automated basis by artificial intelligence and machine learning. That's the bread and butter. Not only does the private sector do cybersecurity first and foremost, it does tactical information. Government has it does tactical information, both to help secure government networks and pass onto the critical infrastructure and to inform that full range of power. If you're going to collect against somebody, you have to understand their networks. If the Defense Department is going to do offensive cyber, it has to understand the target, target environment, the order of battle. So government does tactical, but it does a lot higher up that chain as well. It does a lot on operational. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, TTP, tactics techniques and procedures. What is the adversary doing? And then the holy grail, because when we do intelligence, we want it to be actionable. We don't want this just to be interesting. We want it to be able to drive action. And the real holy grail is if you get a piece of strategic information that is about a coming threat that is credible enough to make you say, and we saw the administration do this in March, shields up. There's something credible enough about Russia's behavior, change in motive, change in capability that you need to change your behavior accordingly. Now, if you wanted to put this in a 9-11 analogy, tactical intelligence is about turning raw information that comes from a lot of different sensors in a lot of different fashions and normalizing that data, turning data into dots. Because different sensors and different kinds of missions you're protecting, it's the equivalent of saying, I have apples, oranges, and amoebas. I need to somehow make these things comparable to each other. So you take data and you turn it into dots. And for the private sector, machines can act on that information without context. But humans usually want to put it into that higher level framework. So humans connect the dots to make patterns and pictures. We say, oh, I see not only are these bad activities, here's a group that actually associate or correlate group of activities that occur over and over again with each other. So this is a tactic. Then you may say, oh, not only do I know this is a set of activities, I have some sense of who's doing it. Attribution is something that people often get hung up on. We talk about attribution and we often, you hear part of the private sector, you hear people with these, you know, funny names for the intrusion sets. And, you know, we actually have a Rosetta Stone to translate them. But those are actually intrusion sets. Those are normally saying, I'm, I'm saying these activities activities belong together. I'm not necessarily saying who did them. We get hung up on saying attribution is to a person. What you're really doing is you're attributing an activity belongs with another set of activities. And sometimes a given intrusion set may belong to more than one actor and vice versa. I saw in my government career, we had, I saw this on the criminal side, groups of criminals who were three or four separate criminal gangs they were one intrusion set. 
because they were using the same malware, they were they were using the same cyber infrastructure. In some cases, they were actually working it at the same city. But when we said this intrusion set, it actually could have been a range of different criminals. Conversely, you see nation state actors who use different tools for different purposes and different tactics and different infrastructure. So you may have one adversary who is in fact multiple intrusion sets, but government cares a lot more about attribution than the private sector does. And the private sector is about enabling cybersecurity. Their customers don't want to get damaged. They don't want to get penetrated. They don't by and large care who's doing it or trying to do it. You just don't want to bleed. You don't care as much who's wielding the knife. Well, government wants to know because again, they have those levers of national power, law enforcement, diplomatic uh, approaches, sanctions, the potential to use that range of national things like offensive cyber. So government has typically, because of its mission, a higher interest in knowing who's doing it as distinct from what are they doing. And again, that's Jim Richberg, former national intelligence manager for cyber. We're going to take a short break. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, Unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC. I'm Justin Doubleday. I'm speaking with Jim Richberg, former National Intelligence Manager for Cyber. So speaking of attribution, in a sense, I mean, there was this really interesting document that was declassified and released just uh, last month. It's a National Intelligence Council assessment from April of 2020 titled Cyber Operations Enabling Expansive Digital Authoritarianism. And this was declassified, of course, by the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines. And, you know, the key takeaway that it, that it describes is that China and other authoritarian governments are using cyber espionage, attacks, and influence operations to extend the coercive reach of their ideological enforcement and political control efforts beyond their borders. In some cases, they are impinging on Western democracies' sovereignty and interests to enhance their domestic stability. Uh, big picture, I don't think that's a huge surprise, I think, Folks have been saying that publicly for a while, but this document does go into some specific intelligence assessments um, that are that are pretty interesting to see, even in, in a, a redacted document like this, Jim. I'm wondering, um, you know, you probably know everything that goes into putting together something like this, but what 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 do you see in this document? What what can what can we take away from it? So, as you said, a lot of this is not really surprising. And, it, you know, it talked about the more aggressive use of cyber tools for hacking opposition groups domestically, for hacking foreign media and journalists, both domestically and abroad, uh, for hacking non-government organizations. And now the big change, though, is when you start seeing the stealing of, of bulk personal information. And I think 
one of the things that I saw in, in the uh, the Nikum, the, the memo talks about this, is the change in targeting by these sophisticated nation state adversaries. What I would say, Justin, is for the intelligence community, you've got to stay aware of aware of what is the state of the art, because the art of the possible drives what someone wants to collect. And I saw this when I was uh, the national intelligence manager a number of years ago. We started seeing some of these adversaries target things like medical insurance databases or airline travel records. Now, the initial use for the people who were doing that, and it's actually referenced in the NICM, is they were doing it for counterintelligence purposes. They wanted to say what foreigners were coming into our country who potentially were going to the same places as domestic persons of interest uh, so that we can start looking for patterns there. But it's big data analytics evolved, and therefore that made big data sets become an attractive target in a way that we hadn't seen it before. OPM. Okay, when the OPM breach happened and everybody said, good Lord, that is terabytes of data on, you know, tens of millions of people. How in the world would you go through it? Well, guess what? If you didn't have big data analytics, that might have been a treasure trove that would have, you only would have been able to exploit by serendipity. But it was the advent of big data analytics that suddenly made things like that an attractive target. And I think we talk about actionable intelligence, Justin, I would say, now, what's the next big thing that we need to start worrying about that the IC should warn about? We've all been talking about quantum computing for years. Who's going to get it first? What's it going to enable? And of course, what will quantum decryption mean in terms of your ability to read everything? So I would posit the IC should start thinking what kinds of data sets does that mean will have that kind of enduring value? Because we don't know when people are going to get the ability to exploit it. Do I worry about somebody you know, reading my credit card bills 10 years from now? No, but are there classes of data where I do say this is data that has a long enough shelf life that both for government and for the private sector, for critical infrastructure, I need to worry about it. So those are the things that are significant in, in this NICM. The other thing that I found significant was to say, was when it said these adversaries are starting to use those big data analytic tools for malign influence, for foreign influence operations. And we saw Russia do this. Some of this was in the Mueller indictment that was issued in 2017. Not only did you have the troll farms in Russia that were spinning up, you know, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, you know, fomenting on both sides, that was very much informed in terms of message and who they sent it to by big data analytics on Western big data sets. Yeah. And I mean, that that's a a fascinating development because I think probably for a long time, the intelligence community concerned itself with what adversaries were collecting against maybe military targets, um, against government's targets. And now we're talking about data sets that are in the private sector um, held, held oftentimes by American companies and I mean, that, that's going to be a difficult challenge for the intelligence community to kind of navigate in terms of, you know, they're raising the red flag about these warnings, but then there's only so so much that they can do to defend those data sets. So I, does that lead to perhaps even more signals from the IC publicly, perhaps in the future along these lines saying, hey, you know, private sector, American citizens, be aware that, you know, this could be happening. This This data is being collected for strategic purposes? I look at government, you know, from the first order, I say government has carrots and sticks to influence behavior. 
And they can they can say, we're going to pass laws or make regulations. So if you don't do something, a bad thing will happen to you, uh, you know, legally. Uh, or if you do something, uh, then we're going to give you an incentive. It can range from the, okay, if you tried and something bad happened anyway, well, you tried. You did due diligence. It could range from having this conversation about here's the art of the possible again. Uh, in what can be done to exploit this kind of data. So here are what you, the big data builders and owners, should do to secure it. Now, the challenge is these companies co collect this stuff so that it can be used. So it's not like you can take it and lock it down. They've got customers around the world using it for a range of purposes. Uh, and, and it's the same thing we see in the Nikum even talked about. Some of these commercial capabilities in cyber espionage that have been built and are marketed commercially, they're dual use tools. They get used to find drug cartels. They get used to find terrorists. Yeah, and some of those same customers then use them to target dissidents and NGOs. You can control the technology, but you have more trouble controlling the use. And that I think is when it becomes tough on these data sets. You can set standards of care, you can set expectations, but it very much gets into that narrative about privacy. And the Nikum talked about what are some of the big organizations like the European Union that have a, that are a large enough market that if they say, here's how we want organizations acting in our boundaries and in our borders to handle our information, it's a big enough market that they may drive behavior through that carrot and stick approach. But yeah, this is when we are worry about the, this kind of data, either the Either these threat actors can collect it um, just in the wild, or they can penetrate the companies that are doing it on a commercial basis. But a lot of this is they simply have to become customers. And you know, we've seen this with the social media companies. You know, you can you can find and target fine just as a commercial function of those platforms. You don't have to do anything nefarious or or illicit. That's a, that's a really really good point. I mean, and I this this is something that just came to mind. But another relatively interesting development over the last month or so is Senator uh, Ron Wyden from uh, Oregon sent a letter to DNI Haynes and L uh, FTC chairwoman uh, Lena Khan talking about how maybe the FTC needs more security clearances, more more access to classified information because they are the, the, the entity within the United States that actually regulates these types of things and they should be more aware of um, perhaps what the intelligence community is seeing outside the United States in terms of targeting uh, as they develop their their regulations. Uh, that's something that just came to mind. I thought I'd point out uh, as part of this conversation is that there's this evolving governance conversation as well. Well, information sharing in general um, is important. And we see this increasingly with the private sector where uh, some of these same people are saying you need to clear at least key people in these big private sector providers of capability as well. And this is one where I think we need to keep in mind for the intelligence community, people always say, oh, they cite sources and methods as a reason not to share. But it's almost invariably not the what that is sensitive, it's the how did we get it that is sensitive. A lot of the same information, there's a plethora of other plausible or actual sources for it. And we see this in, in the interaction I saw as the NIM with the private sector, when when we, the government, would share some tactical, remember we're back now to talking about that tactical and technical information, when we'd share that with the private sector, almost invariably they would say, well, we already saw that, we already knew that. What they may not have known is what we could say about who was doing it, 
based on attribution where they said, oh, yes, of that, I'll make the number up. 100 threats we're facing, if you can tell me the five of these come from this class of actor, that makes it a care about for me in a different sense. So it's not, it's often not the what you know, it's how you know it. So you can tell people that information within government or in the private sector without having to tell them the chain of acquisition and what makes it sensitive. Now there's an element of trust in that. They have to trust when you say, I know, I, I have this information. I have it based on credible sources. That's, you know, they, they have to take your word for it that that is a true statement. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point. And I think it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how this threat intelligence sharing evolves. I know the private sector has been frustrated by maybe a lack of information coming back from the government sometimes, and therefore they're not as interested to participate in some of these programs. But of course, CISA has the, the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative now, and there's there's some new things happening in that space. I mean, no one said, and I saw this as when I was the NIM, no three-letter agency out there had enough data, had enough analysts, had enough understanding of context to say, I don't need any help on this. And the intelligence community deals with this all the time. They're collecting information in foreign cyberspace. There's more that they collect about legitimately bad activity than they can disseminate. You know, you can't put out a trillion reports, so you have to prioritize. And part of this, and we saw this with something like a solar winds, people didn't understand the significance, the cross-cutting importance of something like this. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to say this is the case. Someone might have seen something about an activity of that type and simply not understood its importance because for understandable reasons, the intelligence community is not an expert about how private infrastructures networks work, what the dependencies are. You need the people who own and operate those domestically to be able to say, and they have to have an element of trust if they're going to say, here are my vulnerabilities. Here are things that are important to me then that, but this is a partnership. Uh, the private sector also sees a lot of information government doesn't see. You know, you have companies like mine where we're, get, we're getting data from millions of sources. We're getting a hundred pieces of, of data a day. We're using AI and ML to make sense of it in one sense faster than a government can do. They see different data. We see different data. We're seeing different pieces of the elephant. You want to be able to say, you know, we can step back and put this together. And some of that's classified, some of it, but all of it really relies on trust. You have to be, because we want to get away from reactive. We want cyber threat intelligence to be actionable. But as I said, the farther up that chain towards strategic you go, the far, the more forward looking it is. Not just what's happening to me now and how can I fix that? You want to be resilient and you want to say, how can I make a change now that will prevent um, a, a likely bad thing from happening in the near term? Got it. All right. Um, well, you brought up uh, solar winds, and I wanted to touch on cyber supply chain threats. You know, the Biden administration came in when agencies were just really starting to clean up uh, from solar winds, and uh, that continued for for many months. It may still continue today, uh, but they've really taken this on full board. The cybersecurity executive order was really aimed at dealing with especially software supply chain threats, uh, software supply chain security. We're, we're about a year and a half after that came out. There's been a lot of development, a lot of policy churn. But are you seeing any um, specific challenges that really remain in that space in your head and any promising approaches to, to addressing them? So, so let me step back for, for a moment, Justin. For a number of years, and, and largely until something like a solar winds happened, 
I used to characterize supply chain as the ultimate in faith-based analysis. When I dealt with people in the private sector, especially, I would say, uh, take it as a matter of faith that we, the intelligence community, can do these kinds of activities uh, to lawful targets overseas. Our near-peer states can do them as well, because if we do them and we do them right, we only get caught through bad luck or someone else's good luck. Uh, and that's why until something like a solar winds happened, the relatively few examples I could point to of actual supply chain penetrations were criminal in nature. It was someone, you know, got into the supply chain and actually was putting out point of sale terminals that had bogus chips in them that were put out because criminals need to monetize their success. They're not stealing intellectual property. They're not, you know, collecting secrets like they need to make money. So until something like a solar winds happened, you know, I had to say, trust us, we can do it and not get caught. Other people can do it and not get caught. Well, now with solar winds, everybody recognizes this. And, and I hate to say it, we've been admiring the problem for 30 years. We try to solve it all at once and we don't manage to succeed because it's big. It touches everything. It's a microcosm of cyber. You talked about the so software is a good place to start. And I think that the, the two good things, two of the good things are coming out are transparency and traceability. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've heard people talk about the, the food label analogy. Software should have the equivalent of the ingredient label telling me what's in it. So there should be transparency and there should be traceability as well. I should be able to have artifacts that say, this is how this was developed. And, you know, and it hasn't been tampered with because that's what, you know, stick with that food thing. You have a, an FDA to say, uh, we have standards and Department of Agriculture does inspections. Well, part of this, and we get into what I would call it the myth of open source, because people say, well, you know, open source stuff is, is more secure than commercial stuff. Well, two parts of that myth that I would poke at. Number one, there's, there's if you actually took a commercial product and decompiled the, the code, you would probably find a non-trivial amount of open source stuff in there because uh, it, you know if there is an open source library full of programming calls for Linux or whatnot, why, if I'm a company, am I going to re? Am I going to write something that already exists that is open source that I'm not stealing? So, the reality is, there's a lot of open source in commercial products that people think if I buy commercial, it's done to a different standard. Well, it's got the same vulnerabilities. And the second part is people assume that because open source is visible, that that means greater security. Whereas the reality is, and again, we saw this with things like Solar Winds, a, a, a smattering of volunteers are actually maintaining that code. Yes, everybody can look at it, but the reality is most people don't. So one of the things government has talked about doing was actually putting money towards some of these open source foundations to do things like systematic code review. But but this is one where I think, and people look at where the administration's been going with the executive order and saying, well, that's not going to solve the problem. But again, you have to make incremental progress against this one, because for 30 years, we tried to solve all of supply chain at once, and therefore we failed. So if we start by saying, okay, supply chain, I'm going to say, I want this equivalent of the ingredient labeling. I want transparency. I want attestation that this module hasn't been tampered with, and, you know, and I can look at the building blocks. It's not going to solve all of it, but to the extent that a solar winds made us recognize software supply chain was was a big vulnerability. Let's start and, and mitigate the risk with that. It's all about risk mitigation. It's not about perfection. 
Yeah, and I mean, a, a related issue is there's now this big focus on critical infrastructure and better mitigating um, cybersecurity risks in critical infrastructure. Um, you know, th there's these incident reporting requirements that are coming down the pipeline. And I think a big question is what information in these incident reports does um, CISA or other government agencies who would make use of this information, what information do they really need? As someone who set intelligence priority or collection priorities for the intelligence community, I'm sure that's a question that has been, has been on your mind before is what information really matters. So as you're thinking about these critical infrastructure reporting requirements, do you have any thoughts there? What information they need to collect is very much dependent on what they want to do with it. Are they trying to uh, look at a trend and say, here's something analytically that we in CISA has got people who are intelligence analysts, they're part of the intelligence community. Um, do we need to simply be able to say, here's a coming event? Is this something government needs to respond to in real time? Is this something they need to, to get back to that tactical thing, make actionable for the private sector? Those three different functions would actually drive you in the direction of different kinds and levels of granularity of the information that's being reported. So, you know, you can't just say, I need to report about um, a, a significant cyber incident, which is what the law says. Uh, within 72 hours, you need to say, for what purpose? Uh, and that's very much going to inform what they do. CISA has really been doing a good job of late of, of trying to make cyber information actionable and driving it off of cyber threat intelligence. You're familiar with CVEs, you know, the, those, those exploitable vulnerabilities that you know we find at least 20,000 a year. And people in the private sector say, how in the world can I patch myself against 20,000 things? And the reality is most of them don't. Or they rely on the major vendors, the people who put out operating systems to stay patched against those. Well, the dirty secret is of that 20 plus thousand, usually fewer than 5% end up getting exploited in the wild. And they're not always the newest and the most impactful ones. Often they're things that are a couple of years old because it takes a while for knowledge to disseminate. So CISA has started saying, let's keep a separate list of ones we actually see getting used. Wow, it's a good way to prioritize which 5% or less should I you know, pay attention to patching now because they're not just theoretical problems. So that's the intersection of cyber threat intelligence with broader vulnerability information that I give them great credit for taking what was an unmanageably scoped problem and making it something where someone said, yeah, 5% of 20,000, that's still a big number, but if I'm a big company, uh, I can potentially deal with it. And it gets into this issue. One of the things that came out of the Cyber Solarium Commission was the idea of a Bureau of National Cyber Statistics, you know, a, a way to put all of this data together. Because if you ask me, Justin, it, what is the incidence of ransomware? Ransomware is top of mind for certainly the private sector, for many in government as well, certainly below the federal level. Is ransomware X or is ransomware 5X? Well, we know it's underreported. Um, that's one of the things Circea did was it, it's going to require you to report paying a ransom. But when you simply don't know the order of magnitude of a problem or what classes of solutions work against it, it's hard to have an effective discussion about how to solve that as a national problem. Got it. All right. Well, something to look out for. Uh, again, my guest today is Jim Richberg, the Field Chief Information Security Officer for Fortinet Public Sector. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. I enjoyed it, Justin. 
Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.